recovery work. Welcome to Grief Recovery Now podcast. I'm your host, Charlene Gorzella, your grief recovery specialist. This podcast is being produced just for you. Someone who has been challenged and heartbroken over a significant and devastating loss, death, divorce, sudden life change, or the many other ways we experience grief. You will be taken on a conversational journey with me and some special guests who have come out the other side of grief and committed to small, powerful, and courageous steps that made all the difference in their lives for the better. I want to instill in you on what is possible, that joy, hope, peace, and happiness is closer than you think. While your life is forever changed, you can have a beautiful new outlook on your relationships and loss with a sense of completion that goes deep in your soul. Ready, set, now. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. This is Charlene Gorzella, your hopes for this podcast, Grief Recovery Now. So happy you're here today. As I say in every podcast, I'm so grateful each and every one of you are here today. You are the reason I started this podcast, Grief Recovery. And when I say grief recovery, I mean recovery, getting up to the other side of that grief. And when I say now, I mean now, why not? We can change in a moment's notice, in one realization, and in one intuitive hit in our heart. But we have to do the work to get it. It doesn't happen in a flash, or maybe you could get it in a dream or in a message or something. But I believe we have to show up and want to be better. We want to recover, even if it's a sliver of, I think recovery may be possible, or let me, let me take a step forward and see if this works. But you have to seek it out too. I believe for myself, I think I got to the other side of my grief was because I was watching other people and learning about things that how can I get to the other side? I always read books on leaders or people who have gone through hardships that they got to the other side. And you know, when I first started recovery in drugs and alcohol recovery for 33 years, and there was like this spark, this moment of clarity. I didn't, it just happened. I had that moment of clarity or discovered the clarity after I started doing some work. During that time, when I started taking steps to recovery, I didn't even know what it was that propelled me to take action or that next step. So I did whatever it took as afraid as I was every step I took forward. For some reason, sometimes it was one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, four steps back, five steps forward, one step back. It really was a journey. But I think there was this clarity was a resolve on, yes, there is something besides what I'm feeling right now in my reality, and especially my emotional reality. Because I was afraid to drink. I was afraid not to drink. I was in that center. So at that time, I was in the moment of my fear. I just knew something was up. And so recovery to me, the first step in any kind of recovery work, especially in grief, is to know that you are in grief and to know that I had to do the work to get to that other side because I was on that other side before the circumstances happened. And through the years, I didn't even realize the filters I was walking through. I started doing grief recovery work for my dad. He died when I was 16. 
And in my early 60s, I started realizing there's something up in my relationships that aren't quite working in the long term. So maybe it's my father-daughter relationship. So I started doing some work on that. Even though I've come a long way through my alcohol and drug addiction, through my loss of my mother, through many friends who I've lost through the years and circumstances. And we can get into that more later, not in this podcast, but for some other time. But what I wanted to talk about today was contrary action. And what I just talked about is I had to do contrary action to get to recovery. And contrary action means to do what I don't want to do. When my head is saying no, I had to listen to something that was saying yes. People said, listen to the voice. And I go, I have a hundred voices. Which one do I pick? And for some reason, sometimes it takes every part of me. It's something greater than myself. I don't know what that was that had me saying no, but I was doing the action, meaning I'm saying yes. I talked about it in a live Facebook uh, post yesterday. And I'll give you a very simple example. I've had to go get a prescription for something. It wasn't life-threatening or anything. And I had some left over, but the pharmacy kept calling me saying, your prescription's done, your prescription's done. And I don't know why, I was just resisting getting this prescription done. And I was like, what's going on with me that I am not getting up and going? And there's other things too. Like if I notice that my kitchen is messy for some reason, more than usual, it's like, what's going on in me that I'm not tackling doing some self-care or house care, even if it's just for one or two days, I know something is going on that I don't know if it's a sadness that may have been going on, or I just didn't want to make the effort. It could be as simple as not making the effort. To me, effort is a capital E. When I want to resist something to do, even sometimes I do this podcast, I'm like, oh my God, maybe we could have done it the next day. It's because sometimes I have a little fear in me. I think sometimes effort when we don't take it, or I can only speak for myself when I don't take it. It means there's a little bit of fear of something. For myself, it would be fear of failure, fear of, oh my God, sometimes it's just plain going outside, being in COVID, especially coming out of COVID. A lot of people are as happy as we are that we're getting to the light of, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes we're afraid, you know, I sort of like this cocoon. I'm an extrovert with a little bit of introvert in me. And sometimes it's sort of nice being in that little cocoon, not having tons of decisions to make. Fearing, I don't know what it is. It's some kind of form of fear that I can't even name sometimes. Does that ever happen to you? Let me know in some of the comments or a review you may you want to make on Apple Podcasts, by the way. And so contrary action to me is doing something that you don't want to do. And usually for me, the ones I... The contrary action. I'm not saying there's things you don't want to do because it's not for your highest good. I'm talking about things you need to do for your highest good that will benefit you, like going to the pharmacy. I ended up going to Trader Joe's afterwards and bought food that I needed or supplies that I needed. And when I got home, even driving there to Walgreens and Trader Joe's, I felt good. It was a sense of accomplishment. Not that I didn't do anything all day, but I knew there was a a free-floating anxiety because I wasn't following through. If you can relate to that, please let me know. Get on our Facebook group called Grief Recovery Now. It's by invitation and also come in and I would approve you 
for sure. It's a great group. And let me know how you feel about that or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the podcast platforms. Anyway, I just wanted to give you that tidbit today. And most importantly, I want to introduce our guest. His name is Robert Radnati, and he is a ball of fire, snap, crackle, pop type of guy. And I'm so happy he's on, the, on our podcast today. And he's a person who wants to serve in the world. He's got some great background and he's a liver of life. And it's not the people who live life sometimes to the fullest and have accomplished a lot in their life. We all have roads we go through, and they sometimes are very challenging and life-changing, and sometimes the worst that can happen could be the best that can happen, and Robert has that kind of story. So we'll talk a little bit about him personally, and then we'll talk about how he serves in our world to help you get to your next vibration, next level in life to be have a life beyond your wildest dreams. So anyways, today we're going to be talking about hypnosis, among other things, and how we can help the grieving process and grief recovery. So please help me welcome Robert Rednati. Thank you, Robert. You're welcome. And I'm going to read a little bit about you. So here we go. About Robert Rednati. Robert is on a journey of exploration into the natural healing properties of mind, body, and spirit. Whether it is the achievement of a personal improvement goal or the urgent need to find a healthy, more fulfilling life path. The therapeutic use of hypnosis, imagery, and mindfulness is the most powerful resource he knows to comfortably and efficiently assist you to achieve your goals. John reached a point where he had to ask himself, was he living his best life and full potential? For whatever reason, which each passing year, he felt a growing awareness that he was granted only so much time in his life. And was he using his and being truly happy, fulfilled, and purposeful, what was his contribution going to be in the world? As those questions grew stronger in his consciousness, it awakened him a curiosity to learn and seek what options and experiences were out there that he can offer him answers and the relief he was seeking. Today, he has found his life's passion, reaching out his hands to others who are on or looking for the path for personal transformation. Nothing fills his heart more than to witness a soul releasing its pain, discovering its power, and finding its purpose. That's what happened to him, and he would welcome the opportunity to witness it happening to you. Professionally, Robert was an engineer, he was a track coach at Pepperdine University, and now he's a coach and he's a hypnotist, hypnosis specialist. So please help me welcome Robert again. Thanks again, Robert, for being on. And what we talk about today was, you know, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Tell us a little bit about your past a little bit personally. Well, you know, I'm a, a first-generation American. My parents came over from Hungary during the revolution in 56. And so I actually went to school. Um, I didn't know English. My parents didn't want to teach me because they didn't want me to have an accent. So my kindergarten teacher taught me English. And because of that, I was always in the slow reading group, but I was good at math. And, you know, when you're not good in English and you're good at math, you become an engineer, obviously, right? And that's what I did. I became a chemical engineer. And honestly, I hated it. I'd had no interest in being an engineer at all. I, I got involved with running in athletics and uh, uh, ran at the University of Colorado. And then afterwards, I got involved with corporate running. I worked, went to work for Exxon and 
founded a, an organization called the United States Corporate Athletics Association. We've created track meets for corporations. So AT&T, Exxon, IBM, General Motors, we had track meets, big ones. I mean, there were 10,000 people with these things. So I did work at Exxon for about 18 years before I finally decided I wanted to do that full time. And I just quit to become the high school coach at Thousand Oaks High School. They're boys and girls, cross country and track and field teams for $2,000 a year. I had a wife and two kids and a big house. Fortunately or unfortunately, it was at a time when you know the dot-com phenomena was happening. And all of us fairly young engineers, we would do day trading. And I thought that that would last forever. I was making more money doing day trading than I was at, at Exxon and I did pretty good at Exxon. And so I just quit. My dad, like, you know, he like freaked out, like, what are you doing? But that was my passion. That's what I did and, and did that for about eight years. And we built a, an incredible program, one of the top ones in the nation. Then uh, I wanted to move on to college and there was an opening at Pepperdine for a a volunteer assistant coach to an 84-year-old coach who'd been coaching for 60 years. And I go, he's not going to coach that much longer. I'm going to take that job. And then he got sick a short while later, and I became the head coach within six months and stayed there for 14 years. Unfortunately, I'm also a very competitive, driven person. Pepperdine did not didn't fund the cross-country and track teams like the other sports. We are minimally funded. Um, barely any scholarships, and I wanted to win really badly. And so I started thinking, how can I take my JV recruited kids and turn them into uh, um, champions and, and beat UCLA and USC and other schools? And I came across hypnotherapy and went to a program on it. So they had a sports emphasis option. And I signed up and said, that's what I want to do. I'm going to hypnotize my athletes and help them run faster. By the time I got qualified to be able to actually work with people, we, our first track meet, I remember we went to the San Luis Obispo and the, you know, the kids knew that I was doing this. And I said, who wants to get hypnotized before our track meet the night before? And six brave kids decided they were going to try it. And I don't think they really thought I, I could do it. And honestly, I didn't think that I could do it either. But it worked for all six of them. And the next day, they all set huge personal records. And I thought, okay, this is it. Unfortunately, then the next Monday, I got called into the office by the athletic director who told me I heard what happened on Saturday. And I was thinking he's going to give me some praise for the first time, possibly in the whole time I was there. And he says, you can't do that. And he said, what do you mean I can't do that? And he said, we're a Christian school and you're playing God. And I go, oh, and I just, I just took all the wind out of my sails. But what was happening is I was learning about the power and the value and the benefit and serving people of hypnotherapy, not just for athletes, but for all sorts of things. And that was really turning me on. And so I continued with this program. It's, it's called HMI, Hypnosis Meditation Institute. Very, a lot of famous hypnotherapists, including Joe Dispenza, Marissa Peer, graduated from there. It's kind of like the world's foremost hypnotherapy school. And it's, it's in Tarzana, California, fairly close to here. And so that's how I became a hypnotherapist. And uh, the pandemic, when it hit in last March, was right when I was up for my internship. You get offices in the school and, you know, one or two clients would come in a day. 
that you would practice with. But we were shut down because of COVID. And I was hoping one day out in the future in five, 10 years, because some of the professors were able to do hypnosis over Zoom, that I might be good enough to do that because one of my goals was to live anywhere in the world and to be able to do hypnotherapy from anywhere in the world. But we were forced to do Zoom right away. And so I just posted on my Facebook site saying, I'm looking for some practice hypnotherapy clients who's interested. And within a week, I had 52 clients worldwide. By the time I graduated, I actually graduated with more, the most clinical hours in the 53-year history of HMI, because I was doing six to eight a day, seven days a week. And I was having so much fun. I even hypnotized a dog in Australia to stop barking. Which reminds me, I moved it to this new place here and I got to go get my neighbor here and talk them into letting me hypnotize their dog. <laughs> oh my God, that's wonderful. That sounds fascinating, by the way. You never know the twists and turns that we go through in life to get us where we are today. Now, can we talk a little bit about your family? I know your dad died about 11 years ago or any type of grief you had in your life. And coupled with how do you think hypnotherapy that you're really, you know, that's a real passion of yours, among some other things. How does that help in the grief space, would you think? And in your own experience, maybe with it, that could have helped you. Yeah. Grief. You know, when I, when I, I, I was so attracted to talking with you about this because it seems to me and, and I, th I think I saw it at a time when I was grieving still for my dad. I started thinking, we go through all sorts of kinds of grieving, the grieving that like you've had, the grieving of the passing of people, but smaller things. I'm grieving that I just left this beautiful place on Malibu Beach into the place where I'm at right now. Go like, why did I move? That was like the stupidest thing I ever did. I, I need to process that grieving. We're taught, or many people are taught, you know, the, the five-step grieving process. As I started- It's a myth, by the way. Is it? It's not true. You know, and even um, Ellen Kubler-Ross, uh -huh. she also retracted. It's really for the person she was talking about is for the person who's dying. Ah, well, that it's explains- It's not so it. much for the griever, even though we do have those feelings, of course, because it's part of our human feeling. That's interesting because I took a course actually at Colorado called Death and Dying. That's where I learned about her work. Mm -hmm. And so it could be that just in my mind, I mixed that up and just assumed that that was for the recovery process also. But one of the things that I've learned in through my hypnotherapy, and I call this the theory of the mind. And if you'd kind of picture like a mind, let's say like an oval, mm -hmm. um, when you're first born, only a small sliver of your mind is developed. And we'll just say it's kind of at the bottom here. And all we know are flight or fight, or sometimes people add in freeze. And I think there's a fourth F now that someone's come up with. But your mind develops between birth and about eight years old. Um, about eight years old, you start to develop a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. And it turns out your conscious mind is about 12% of your mind. And there's some research that suggests it's as little as 5%. But your subconscious mind is at least 88%. Between eight years old and puberty, 12 or 13 or so, you develop kind of, and, and it's, it's, it's mismatched here. So when I'm drawing a drawing, I, I draw a line between subconscious and, sub, and conscious. And I call that the critical or analytical mind. 
And so somewhere around eight years old that you can distinguish what's true and what's not. So what gets stored in your subconscious up till about eight years old, everything that you experience, hear, see, think, touch is stored in your subconscious. So literally you have thousands of positive experiences and thousands of experiences that don't serve you and they impact the way you show up in life. And the best example I have of this critical mind is thinking about Santa Claus. You know, growing up, most kids believe in Santa Claus. And then somewhere around eight years old, you start to think or someone suggests something to you that says, how could this fat guy really fly around the world on a sleigh pulled by reindeer? The top one's got a red nose and lands on every house in the world with kids and slides down this chimney and gives you presents, has some chocolate chip cookies and milk, and then leaves. And you go, I don't think that that's true any longer. And so somewhere around that eight-year-old, plus or minus a little bit, we develop that critical mind that decides what to store in our subconscious. But we continue to store things in our subconscious. And they could be big things. And, and this, is, this is why I wanted to tell the story, because it relates to, from my perspective, into the recovery process. Because most of the things that we're talking about, you're talking about, they're in that 88% of your subconscious. We can consciously even choose contrary actions, consciously do that. But we still have this huge subconscious that has a huge role in the way we show up. And the best example I have is growing up, my sister and I, we always wanted to have a dog, but my dad didn't like dogs. He didn't want a dog, but he couldn't explain it. And it wasn't until years later, we were home in Hungary in Budapest at a family reunion at his sister, my aunt's home, and there's dogs running all over the place. And I just remarked, hey, how come you guys have dogs? We weren't allowed to have dogs growing up. And his sister said, well, I know why. And everyone kind of turned to her and said, well, why? And she said, when your father was five years old, he was bitten by a dog. He didn't even remember it when she said it because it was in his subconscious. So what hypnosis and hypnotherapy is, it's actually overwhelming your conscious mind. So it's not a, a falling asleep, even though, you know, when I take you down, I count you down and I say uh, five, four, three, two, one, zero, deep sleep, and I snap my fingers. It's not asleep. I have overwhelmed your conscious mind with message units, which is, would be likened to like bits of information in a computer. And it wants to escape and it escapes into your subconscious. And once we get you into that state in your subconscious, which quite truly hypnosis only means that it's the state where you're the most open to suggestions. That's what hypnosis means. You're the most open to suggestions. And a, a certified master hypnotherapist like myself, we are here to just serve the client. And so we listen and say, you know, what's going on in your life that we can serve you because I'm going to suggest that into your subconscious. And then we can either strengthen one of those positive experiences that's been stored there. We can lessen or eliminate a negative experience or something that doesn't serve you or create a whole new experience for you. And that's one of the powers of, you know, visualization or imagery or NLP. You know, there, there's like 50 different modalities under the umbrella of hypnotherapy that we can use. We can create a whole new uh, reality for you because the mind doesn't know whether it's real or imagined. And so like in sport, 
you know, someone might think in, in, in my field, a runner, I can't beat the UCLA guys. Well, I could hypnotize an athlete and create images of them actually beating that UCLA guy to the point where it becomes more real than the previous belief. And then he goes out there and he beats the UCLA guy. Or in the case of grief recovery, oftentimes, truthfully, something happened to all of us around five years old, plus or minus, that made us mostly believe or sometimes believe that we are not good enough that we don't deserve something, money, relationship, um, a job, a home, whatever it is. And as much as we consciously work to eliminate that, it creeps up in our life at times when we don't want it to, need it to, desire it to. And through hypnotherapy, we could actually uncover those things and then work to eliminate them and really instill in each and every client that you are loving, you are lovable, you are loved, you are more than enough, you are worthy of whatever it is that they choose, which includes grief recovery. Because oftentimes, and I'll I'll use my mom as an example, she truthfully, after 11 years, she does not want to recover. She wants to feel bad. She's the victim. She grew up in an oppressive kind of, of, of culture and environment, you know, for first the Nazis and then the Russians and all the terrible things that happened to their families. You just imagine what's in their subconscious. She doesn't believe that she deserves the happiness and she would rather die. She's trying to will herself to die than to recover. And so each and every person has something like that. And so it's such a satisfying, uh, fulfilling profession to get involved with because you can change people's lives. Right. And you had mentioned to me with your mother that she's, you know, she was through the years started observing you or talking to you about what you're doing now. And she called you weak. Yeah. um, The system was you're weak. And then probably when she's growing up, her conscious mind is like, hey, you can't be weak. You can't show emotions. You well, or, or the subconscious, subconscious. Mind is, is more likely saying that. Right, 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 right. Because truthfully, when you talked about earlier about that inner voice and you said, which one of the 50 or 100, that's your subconscious. That's your, your gut, your intuition, your subconscious, whatever you want to call it. And getting in touch with that and helping people and clients, you know, access that is such a beautiful process to help them with countless. I think there's like 146 issues that hypnotherapy helps with. One of which is grief recovery. One of which is sports performance, but there's countless others out there, including I mentioned to you, I hypnotize a dog in Australia over zoom to stop barking. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. That is unbelievable. I never heard that before. Hey, also the subconscious, does it become your consciousness and your subconscious? Let's say you're in grief and you have a husband like your your mother who passed away and can't get over this grief. Does it help you because of reasons like I don't want to forget I'm being disloyal. I feel guilty. I have survivor's guilt. I can't make it without him. I can't be happy without him. 
so that you sort of change that story because a lot of our stories we can shift our reality because it's a reality with a cap with a small r this yeah. belief system that isn't even reality where you help putting like a true reality as far as to me what we're here for is to live fully and death is part of life it's sacred and horrible at the same time sometimes but it's a chapter do you put stuff like that in people can you talk to me about how you would deal with someone who doesn't want to forget about their husband or their well, loved one that passed away or it could even be a job or they were raped trauma ptsd whatever yeah, yeah. for a person that doesn't want to be helped i can't help them they have to make that choice they have to make that contrary statement and just like you you'd mentioned you came up with some really great reasons why not to a person has to make that choice. And if they don't, I, a hypnotherapist is just the facilitator. So you have to make sort of that conscious choice that says, I am willing to go into that 88% of my mind, that subconscious. It's scary to me. I don't know what's there. Another human being is going to look at it. That feels kind of funny to me. But when the pain becomes great enough, then oftentimes change can happen or not. In my mom's case, she, and, and she's in incredible pain. She, her subconscious is so firm in her beliefs that I can't get her to change. But she's the only person that I've ever run across this way. Most people, and I've, I've had um, a number of people that have come to me that are contemplating suicide. And, you know, I talk with them and it's the coolest thing after three, four sessions a month, doing it weekly, their life has changed and it is the coolest thing in the world. And that's one of the reasons when I saw your, your podcast and your passion, I wanted to reach out to you and say, here's another tool that people can use. Because we can try to do that at that conscious level. And I found that I'm pretty good at doing that at the conscious level, but then I slip. And I've learned that in my engineering mind, I have to go to a different place if I want real and permanent change, because I can make it happen for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, but I want a lifelong, lifetime of relief from whatever was causing the pain. It was like want, a psychic change. Exactly. So, okay. Exactly. It's like when I was using drugs and alcohol, I had yeah. to have a psychic change. Was I got a white knuckle not using? Yeah. But no, I didn't want to live that way because that's not sustainable. But right. I was willing to have a psychic change by doing the work. I didn't go around saying I want a psychic change. I just believe that the work would get me to a level, unprecedented level in my yeah. life and thinking, because I was a think, you know, I thought my thinking process was a little off. Well, and typically something happened to you too around five years old that said, I'm not worthy. I need to go get the artificial stimulant of drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Because that's, that's why hypnotherapy is actually has the highest percentage success rate with, um, with smoking cessation, drug cessation, alcohol cessation, um, because you go into that subconscious that typically you don't. Or, you know, like you and I both are in the Tony Robbins world and you go to a Tony event and you yell and scream things, affirmations, or he calls them incantations. 
what he's actually doing is trying to rewire your whole subconscious. Your, he calls it your physical body. And, and I've done that. I've done a lot of work with Tony. I'm a senior leader with him right now. Um, but I'm finding that hypnotherapy is kind of a, a kinder, gentler, loving, <laughs> that's not a good word, way to actually do the same thing. Or it's just another tool in a toolbox of 50 different modalities. Right. And you need to anchor it. I mean, I could scream and yell because I am that extrovert. And uh-huh. then I could do the hypnosis. And, and it, like you said, kinder, gentler. Not that it's rough with Anthony Robbins. It's just different. Some it's people, fun. Huh, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> and so you're rewiring, not in a negative way, but you're getting into your true nature. Yeah. Like a baby grows up. He, does, he didn't wasn't born with hate in his heart. But this is all learned stuff. And the filters that we walk in this world with, we don't even know. People say you're in denial. You don't even know you're in denial because you don't have a point of reference. And so working with someone like you doing the work like a Tony Robbins or grief recovery method or something like that, you don't do it alone. Like you are probably such a beautiful guide through this hypnosis and you believe in the people you work with. How do you go about being a practitioner, hypnotist? What do you call yourself? Is it hypnotist? Hypnotherapist. I'm actually officially, I'm a master certified hypnotherapist. How do you get, get people to trust you? Because a lot of people don't trust with the, you know, the subconscious. What's he going to make me do? You know, like bark like a dog or something. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, or do something against are, my nature. There are two kinds of hypnosis. One mm-hmm. is stage hypnosis where, you know, people have seen that. I've seen that where a hypnotist can make you quack like a duck or run around like a chicken. And then there's a professional certified master hypnotherapist. There's a union. There's a professional society. There's a code of ethics. But to answer your question, how do I get people to trust me? People just kind of do if they are open to it. You know, I'm kind of out there as it, you know, in, in social media and, and people see my posts and go, I want to try that. But not everyone. There are people, it, it surprises me, but I was probably this way 20 years ago going like, you got to be kidding me. When I was an engineer at Exxon, I don't think I was going to let anyone try to hit me hypnotize me because what could they do? Although I should pull that one back because we did have a Christmas party once and they had hired a um, a stage hypnotist and I volunteered to go in there because I want to see, can they really do this? They, they had 20 people on stage and they narrowed down to four of us, um, two guys and two women. And I'm, I'm sitting there trying to do it. I'm, I'm wanting to be hypnotized. I want to have this experience. And then at the end, the guy came to me and grabbed me and he, and he, he whispered in my ear, just go along with it. And then he said, you're out or something like that. And then I went along with it. I was so disappointed though. But and that, that, then I didn't have another experience for another 20, 30 years, whatever. But then once I started seeing what people were doing and, and started getting involved with the mind, and, and I'm also involved with Joe Dispenza now and learning quantum physics of the brain. In fact, I'm leaving tomorrow to go to a, another training program. I'm going to become one of uh, Dr. Joe's, Joe's corporate trainers. I just, my mind opened up. And now when I talk to people about it, there are people that you know probably don't trust but there's plenty of people that the pain has gotten great enough that they're willing to try something. And I do have a trusting personality, so they're willing to do that with me. They know I'm going to be kind and loving and serving. 
Oh, yeah, you could see that in you. And that's why when we talked the first time before this podcast that I, I trusted that in you. Let me talk to you about long term, like myself, it could be sobriety, right? Yeah. Long term sobriety, because people yeah. go in and out, they don't use they use and all that. But how would somebody when we're dealing with belief systems, because that's what I believe that we deal with mostly in the, the subconscious and the consciousness. Yeah. And I know besides hypnotherapy, what would you suggest for people to have lasting results? Like you said, somebody can quit smoking and maybe 30 days or 60 days, six months. They don't oh. sustain it enough or do they just quit like that? Well, it depends, you know, like most answers in life. But with smoking cessation, I think that, you know, it's, it's something like almost 90% success rate long term. It's not a oh. short term thing. Now it takes anywhere from one to six sessions to help um, cure someone from smoking. And it, it's interesting. It's actually easier to help someone who's a, a multi-pack smoker than an occasional smoker, because that occasional smoker doesn't think it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So it really depends. But one of the, the reasons I really like hypnotherapy is that the process is actually designed to be long-term because you're working in that subconscious. Now, for some people, and and honestly, this is what happens, you fall in love with the process and you continue going for years. And, and, you know, we have issues that come up in our lives because we're human. We all have flaws and something comes up, go, I'm going to try that. Let's, let's solve that one. And so, you know, there are people that are regular clients that my mind meet, you know, when we first start out weekly, then it becomes monthly and then maybe quarterly, but you develop, develop a relationship because of that trust and confidence that you develop in the process. Mm-hmm. And so when something else comes up, you go, Hey, I, I learned a great tool that helped me for many, many years. I'm going to go do this. So, you know, like you talked about when you sort of change that vision of who you are, that's a huge part of that. And then you have to do regular stuff. Maybe it's going to Tony Robbins or Joe Dispenza or, or watching I'm Not Your Guru or reading books, personal development. Once you get on the path of personal development, I found that people are become more and more open to becoming a better version of themselves. And then it becomes a matter of fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. And the fixed mindset people, it's kind of tough to work with them because they have to first become a growth mindset person. But the growth mindset person almost becomes exponential and your your life becomes even more magical with each passing day, month, year. Yeah, it's like grief recovery too, like life in general. It's like you get tune-ups as you go because you get material in life. If you're out there in the world, you're going to have disappointments. You're going to have loss. And I tell people all the time, we're taught how to get, we're not taught how to lose. Right. And that disappointment, a lot of people think that they lose, lose your job, telling you can't use like in Pepperdine, Mm -hmm. you can't use your hypnosis. That must've been a big loss for you. It was. You saw results. Yeah. And so to being able to work through that or walk through that. And I'm not sure. How did you walk through that? Did you quit shortly after or? I, I quit about a year later. 
Um, it was it was a series of things where I you know I'm I'm a pretty creative kind of guy. I was trying everything possible, and finally just got to the point where I said I just can't do this. I was born I in my subconscious. I am destined to create championship programs, winners, um, help people achieve more. And and truthfully, the the students that I've had over the 30 years or so of coaching, I love the impact that I have on them as a person, but I'm still an athlete and I'm still a coach. And I wanted them to get that plus win an Olympic gold medal. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Well, it's so great. And plus everything like the adversity, if we realize that you never know the mosaic of life where that would take you, it's either going to, I was married once and I realized you have to have the same get that core values to be married, right? For it to last or stand the test of time. That's my opinion. And I remember my ex-husband or husband at the time, we didn't have the same core values. I didn't realize the importance, but what happened, the opposite of what he was in the core value or two or three of mine that didn't, wasn't congruent, it anchored mine even deeper. Yes. So that disappointment probably anchored more like, Another ingredient on really affirming what is your life's purpose or your next right move in life. Do you, yeah. Does that make sense to you? It, it does make sense. It's kind of interesting because I kind of lit up when you started talking about relationships because I've been studying that quite a bit. And I could talk with you at another time about it because it is values, but it's also your human needs. And it's also what I call team fit. And all three of those need to be in place in order to have a successful relationship. And then the importance of having polarity because relationships never break up for a lack of love. They break up for lack of polarity, that polarity being masculine and feminine. Mm. Hey, can you tell us for our readers, what is it again? Your human needs, which is the six human needs, right? Yeah. Your top two human needs need to be aligned or Mm -hmm. they're suffering. I mean, you can be in a relationship, but there can be suffering. Your values need to be aligned, just like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the third one is team fit. Mm-hmm. And team fit would be sort of like, let's say you were a Republican and I was a Democrat, mm-hmm. or um, you were Jewish and I were Catholic or something like that. So team fit is important. There's a lot of different ways to look at that. Oh, so you as a team, that's another conversation about the differences. Yes. Yes, uh, yes. But to explore that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I, and on the grief space, what would you say? Because we're coming to an end here. And what would you say to someone who's in extreme grief? I know what hypnotherapy, what I've read up on it before I saw you, it gives you less anxiety. It helps you with some anxiety that may go with it or feelings that maybe won't let you go to that next step of recovery. Can you talk about that? And I know you're, I was reading about it, so I don't know if I'm accurate about that. Well, anxiety would be one of those 146 different sort of symptoms mm-hmm. that hypnosis can address. So it doesn't necessarily mean that anxiety is part of everyone, but it can be. Okay. So anxiety is addressed through hypnotherapy, just as any other issue might be addressed through it, smoking cessation or weight loss or getting a dog to stop barking. You put the client into that subconscious state, and particularly in anxiety, you create a whole new image there. 
So whatever the anxiety might be, um, common ones are around test taking. So um, um, students taking the, the bar or the MCATs or even you know LSATs, things like that. Hypnotherapy is awesome for that because you build up almost that internal confidence that says, I'm going to crush this thing. And then you can actually go perform at the level that you're capable of doing because your mind is playing tricks because of something happened at five years old that says, I'm not good enough to get into law school or to ask that girl out on a date or to recover from grief. And so creating that whole new image within your subconscious is critical to a lot of the various presenting issues that might come up from a client. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, I think your work is great. Can you give us a couple tips for our listeners before you go on what's going on with you? What, where can we, where can they find you? I know there's going to be some links, but like two tips and anything that's new going on. Are you writing a book? I think you had a book out, any of your courses and we'll have all your links, but So some people say that I can't be hypnotized. Well, the truth of the matter is everyone can be hypnotized. And in fact, you go through several stages or times of the day when you're in hypnosis. Remember the definition I gave you of hypnosis is that it's that state when you're the most open to suggestions. It turns out that when you first wake up, And right before you go to sleep, you are in a state of hypnosis. You're in that theta wave frequency. And that's the place where you're the most open to suggestions. That's why when you wake up, it's a great morning ritual practice to set your intention during the day for that day. Or right before you go to sleep to set your intention for the next day. Essentially, you are self hypnotizing yourself to what you desire. You can do this on your own a little bit. In yeah. if you want to start doing something now. Self-hypnosis very- is, is very, very powerful. I mean, athletes do it all the time. You are a, a baseball player. He is visualizing hitting that pitch all day long. Or that Olympic skier is visualizing that downhill run. Because the speed you go down on a downhill run, I remember seeing this on ABC Sports during the Olympics many years ago, and I guess it was with the bobsled. And the bobsled goes so fast that if you're sitting in the bobsled court and you're trying to steer it, you will crash based on just seeing the course. So what they used to do was, I remember that this must have been way before video, they had, uh, you know, kind of America's top person, and he had like Polaroid cameras of every, every segment of the, the the two, two, not, yeah, whatever it is, the run, the run. And he was just visualizing and he would close his eyes and he would just with his hands be steering it so that when he got to the course, he didn't even have to watch. He knew what to do. He had programmed that into his subconscious. And the same thing happens with grief recovery, with relationships, with getting a, a job, career, a home, everything in life. When you can program that into yourself, make that conscious choice, that contrary action to what might be happening and saying, I'm going to recover from this grief. No matter what, I'm going to find joy. I'm going to bring joy to more other people. I'm going to live a life 
that God or the universe or higher power created and intended for me because the highest good is always what matters and that life is happening for me, not to me. And making that shift is a huge, huge tip for your listeners. Yes. I love that. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time on Grief Recovery Now podcast, getting to know you. That was just fascinating. I love the different avenues that we could take. And bravo. Glad you were on again. And thank you. And hope you got something out of it, our listeners. So glad you were here today, wherever you are in the world. I was looking this week. We have lots of people from the United States, even Malaysia. I was like, oh my God, Canada, Beirut, all these weird. I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy because I'm on a mission as I know you are, Robert. And everyone, hope you're having a great day. Hope you walk out of here with something of value. As, you, as I did. So see you guys later. And we're on all the podcast platforms. So please share. If you want to listen again, please listen to it again. And please spread the word again. We need to let people know the stuff is out there. Okay. All right. Peace and love, everyone. See you next time. Thank you for joining our Grief Recovery Now journey. Like what you heard? It would be the biggest compliment to our mission if you would please subscribe, rate, and review Grief Recovery Now on Apple Podcasts, and we'll keep you posted on our next podcasts. If you don't have Apple, we are also on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Also, please join our private Facebook group, Grief Recovery Now, and if you are in need of any personal attention, please contact me with the link on this podcast page, which is griefrecoverymethod.com forward slash G-R-M-S forward slash Charlene dash Gorzella. It would be an honor to hear from you.